Good morning, church. You're welcome to grab a seat as we continue to fix our gaze on Jesus, only Jesus, and give him the glory and honor that he alone is due. Go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter, please. Uh, if you're grabbing the Bible there in the seat in front of you, it begins on page 953. If you brought your own Bible with you this morning and you need to use your table of contents, that's great. Everyone's eyes feasting on the word of God together today. Well, as we begin this series on 1 Peter, I want to lay out a quote that I believe captures one of the greatest encouragements coming out of the book of 1 Peter. I believe hearing, embracing, and living as though this quote is true has the power to fill our days with hope, peace, and joy. So here it is, it's on the screen. A Christian is someone who can say, if I die tomorrow, I'll be with Jesus. If not, he'll be with me. If I die tomorrow, I'll be with Jesus. And if not, he'll be with me. I wanna show you how I see this to be true, even coming out of the first few verses in this book. The letter of 1 Peter, it was not composed in a vacuum to address hypothetical situations. No, 1 Peter, it was written to real people experiencing real life issues. It's written to Christians that are experiencing suffering on account of their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, written to Christians who were walking through hard times in a world that is hostile to God and his word. As we look at our lives in the church right now, I'd say we're walking through unusually hard times. Uh, the effects of a historic pandemic are still weighing in on people in so many ways, and we are definitely living in a country that I would say in many ways is increasingly hostile to God and his word. Uh, even as we sit here gathered this morning, I think of some of our brothers in Canada who have been arrested because they refuse to forsake assembling together to exalt the name of Jesus with their church family. The reality is since Genesis chapter three, this world has been hostile to God and it will continue to be until the Lord Jesus returns. Jesus promised us this. He says it in John 16, 33, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Peter was there when Jesus spoke these words on the night of his betrayal. Peter witnessed firsthand the sufferings of Christ. He knew what it meant to suffer for righteousness sake. He understood that being a Christian meant following in the footsteps of Christ. It is with this experience and this knowledge that Peter writes to his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that are being grieved by various trials. His purpose through this whole letter is to encourage fellow Christians to stand firm in God's grace because the end of all things 
is near. And so, Father, I pray that as we turn our ear now to your voice, that you would speak to us through your word. And that in your speaking, you would strengthen us. You would encourage us. You would establish us firm in our faith. You would confirm us in you. And that you would give much, much hope to your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. First Peter, I'm gonna read verses one through 12 to begin our time this morning. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Verse 10, now concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Even as I read through these verses, I am so excited to share with you what I saw in God's word as I had time to look at it this week. Uh, In his address, Peter does far more than begin with dear John or O inhabitants of Galatia. He begins by identifying who his recipients are at the very core of their being. He begins by getting to the very core of their identity by calling them elect exiles. I love this about Peter. Like Peter does not play games when it comes to theology. He comes out of the gates swinging. He's like, listen, before I say anything to you, before you hear me say anything in this letter, you have to know who you are. 
If you don't get this at the very beginning, then everything that I'm about ready to say to you is gonna sound like absolute lunacy. You're gonna think I'm a total nut if you do not understand who you are in Christ. So don't miss this. Don't let the train get off the tracks before it even leaves the station. He says this, to those who are elect exiles. Elect. This means chosen by God. Now, we won't enter into a theological treatise on election here, however bad we all want to. But we can't pass this term without quoting at least a little Charles Spurgeon. So, Spurgeon says this, I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure that he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Christian, God chose you. He chose you and he chose me before the foundation of the world and he did it out of his free and generous love. We are elect exiles. He says to the elect exiles of the dispersion, the Jews, they use this term dispersion to refer to the scattered communities of Jews living outside of Palestine ever since the exile to Babylon. These were the Jewish people spread throughout the Roman Empire, living outside of Jerusalem, but longing to return to their homeland. See what Peter does here. He takes something that's very physical, that's very earthy, that's very geographical, and he brings it to something that is spiritual. He's wanting his recipients to understand that they're not just scattered about geographically, but that we're also not at home in this world. This world is not our home. If you are in Christ, then your citizenship is in heaven. If you have turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, and you keep turning from your sins and you keep trusting in Jesus, then you don't belong to this world. You are a stranger here, a foreigner. While most in this room, if not all, are citizens of the United States, God labels you and I as foreigners here. Our citizenship in this country is extremely temporary. That means that we are foreigners in the United States because we belong to another country. We have another homeland that we long for, fight for, and live for far more than this one. He then roots their identity as elect exiles in the Trinity. He helps them understand how God, being one in essence, three in person, roots them in himself by making them elect exiles. He says this in verse two, that you are an elect exile according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And then he throws in this little phrase, and for sprinkling with his blood. 
He wants them to understand that their status, their identity is first and foremost according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to, that is, in line with. Following the preordained knowledge of. God the Father didn't just know it because he looked far into the future and saw what you would have decided. He knows it because he planned it as such according to his definite plan to work all things according to the counsel of his will. He knows it as the Isaiah 46 one who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. You are an elect exile according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit of God is setting you and I apart. He's setting us apart unto God in our regeneration and consequent faith in our conformity to Christ. It is the Spirit who is at work at every level and in every way. According to the definite foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. There's a purpose for our identity and that is obedience. Living in a manner worthy of the calling that you and I have received in Christ. Walking faithfully with the Lord by turning from our sins and being satisfied in Jesus. Peter wants his readers and you and I to know who we are before he begins to exhort and encourage us. We are God's chosen people living in a world that is not our home. The end of verse two, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is not a throwaway phrase. This is not the obligatory apostolic opening to an old letter, right? Uh, he is speaking a blessing over God's people and he is saying, may the very grace and peace of God Almighty be multiplied in your life. May the unmerited favor from the throne of God be lavished upon you. And may God give you a settled confidence in all that he is in Christ, all that he's done, all that he's doing, and all that he's promised to do. Would God just continue to fill you with that and give you more grace and more peace and more grace and more peace so that your soul can be at rest and your confidence can be found in him. Brothers and sisters chosen by God, and living in a world that is not our home, a world that is hostile to God and his word and his people, may God pour out grace and mercy into your life and may he multiply it. Like what more could you and I need this morning? What more could you and I need this week? What more could you and I ask for from now until glory other than grace and peace being lavished upon our lives? We're two verses in and we have enough to digest for eternity. But alas, there's more, much, much more. In verses three through 12, 
Peter praises God for three glorious realities. These three realities are precisely what you and I need to have hope in the midst of exile. Look at verse three with me, please. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Three glorious realities that we can praise God for. The first that we praise him for is for all he is for us in Christ. Praise God for all he is for us in Christ. According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again. According to his great mercy, God has given us an inheritance. According to his great mercy, he guards us for an ultimate salvation. Just notice with me the active working of God in the life of the believer and how incredibly passive the language is when it comes to us. Now, later in the letter, Peter's gonna make all kinds of exhortations. He's gonna call on followers of Christ to live their life in a certain way. So the letter of 1 Peter, it's not a call to passivity. This is not here to remove our responsibility of walking in faithfulness. Instead, Peter is calling us to praise God for the essential prior working of God in our lives before we could do anything in faithfulness or obedience to God. Look at the language. He caused us to be born again. Of course he did. Like just think about the whole reality of being born. How many of you in this room chose to be born? That was something that happened outside of your active working and operation, something that happened to you, new birth, New birth in Christ happens to us. It's something that God does. Any spiritually good thing is a result of new birth. It is never the cause. We are helpless. We are fully dependent on God. And this reality, it demonstrates the absolute freedom of God. We are spiritually dead. And dead people don't do anything. God is the decisive and ultimate actor upon whom our new birth fully depends. He caused us to be born again, and then it says, to a living hope. We were once people without God and without hope in the world, but now we have been born again to a living hope. And brothers and sisters, our hope is not in an idea. Our hope is not in a G, I sure do hope it all turns out in the end. Our hope is fixed firmly in a person. Our hope is in Jesus and Jesus is alive. This is what makes our hope a living hope. 
We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Sin could not defeat him. The grave could not hold him. The resurrection is God's final word on hope. It is our clear depiction of God's unstoppable power and his unbreakable will. It's why we can gather together like this and sing songs that say, then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Jesus, yours is the victory. Hallelujah. That means let's praise God together. Hallelujah, you say hallelujah. hallelujah. Yeah, hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, your turn. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. In being born again, we have been born again to a living hope and we have been born into a new family. We now, by virtue of our new birth in Christ, belong to God's family. We are God's children. And by virtue of living to his family, you and I are entitled to an inheritance. Notice again the mercy and kindness of God. An inheritance is not earned. It's something that someone else spends their entire life working hard and being diligent and denying themselves other things so that they can leave you something and you didn't do a thing to get it. It's earned by someone else, set aside by that person to give to their children later. The children do nothing and they get everything. Having been born again, now belonging to God's family, we have an inheritance, it says here in verse four, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It is imperishable. That is enduring forever. It is undefiled, clean, pure, untainted, and it is unfading. It's not slowly diminishing. It's not being chipped away at. It is the hope of a certain future with God in which we will be forever and fully satisfied. See the certainty of this inheritance in verse five. It says, this inheritance is being kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation yet to be revealed. So I'm given this inheritance and I don't even have the power and ability to guard it. If it was given to me to protect and to guard, I would mess it up. So the Lord's like, nope, I'm gonna give it to you and then I'm gonna protect it, I'm gonna keep it, I'm gonna guard it and ensure that it is yours in the end. It is God's power from first to last. It is God's power that causes us to be born again. It is God's power that gives us an inheritance. It is God's power that keeps our inheritance. And it is God's power that guards us through faith. 
brothers and sisters, as elect exiles, we praise God for all that he is for us in Jesus Christ, our living hope. The second glorious reality we praise God for is found in verses six and seven. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We praise God for an unshakable faith. Praise God for an unshakable faith. Uh, Right now, during our time of exile in a world that is hostile to God, his word, and his people, you've been grieved by various trials. As we keep reading this letter, we'll learn that God's people, they're being criticized, mocked, discriminated against, dragged into court on trumped up charges, all because of their faith in Christ and their unwavering commitment to following him. Perhaps you've seen some of this persecution or trial invading your life. And sometimes I think we have a tendency to just look at God's word and consider what's going on in my life or in my immediate sphere. And we can forget sometimes what's going on with our brothers and sisters scattered all throughout the world that every day are enduring significant persecution for the sake of Christ. Look at what Peter says about this. He says that you're being grieved by various trials if it's necessary. There's a purpose to these trials. This kind of suffering for the sake of Christ, it's never meaningless. It's being used by God to effect something in your life. God is using these trials to show the tested genuineness of your faith. It is a faith that is more precious than any earthly gain. It's better than gold. It's better than riches because it holds value not only in this life, but also in the one to come. And God is subjugating these trials. That is, he's taking them and putting them under our feet and causing them to do good unto us. He's taking that which was meant for evil and forcing it to serve our good. The trials that you and I face for the sake of Christ, it's not bad luck. It's not unfortunate. It's not even just a part of living in a sin-cursed world. It's according to the mercy of God. That you and I experience various trials, each and every one of them are good gifts from God to strengthen our faith to build our character and to imbue our lives with hope. It's as Tozer said, when I understand that everything happening to me is to make me more Christ-like, it resolves a great deal of anxiety. Brother or sister, I don't know what you walked in with from this week or this past season of your life, I don't know what you have to go home to when you walk out of here, but I do know this, 
that if you are in Christ, he is using each and every ounce of trial and suffering and difficulty to make you and I look more like Jesus. And that is far more precious than anything we could attain. God promises us that we, he will not allow our faith to be broken. Though trials will assault our faith and test our faith, our confidence will not be shaken. Our faith in Christ will, will result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ comes again. And this leads us to our third glorious reality that we can praise God for. We praise God for the hope of heaven. Praise God for the hope of heaven. Look at verses eight through nine with me, please. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Fanny Crosby was born on March 24th, 1820. She wrote over 9,000 hymns. She was an incredible woman of God and just an incredible woman. Uh, six weeks after her birth, Fanny caught a cold that settled in her eyes. Her parents took her to the doctor who applied a mustard-based ointment to her eyes and it didn't cure the affliction, but it damaged her optic nerve, leaving Fanny blind. Fanny lived 95 years. That's 34,675 days without sight. Many times people expressed sympathy for her blindness. Her response was, do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I was born blind. When asked why she would say this, her reply was this, because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my savior. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Brother and sister in Christ, this is the glorious hope of heaven. The glorious hope of one day closing our eyes in this world and opening them in eternity. And when we do, the first face that shall gladden your sight and my sight shall be that of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the outcome of our faith. This is our salvation. It is the hope of forever with that Jesus. Verses 10 through 12, they go on to say that this salvation that's been given to us in Christ this salvation that's been given us according to the great mercy of God. It's what the prophets have prophesied about and what the angels of heaven have longed to observe. So when we praise God for these realities, 
the reality of all that he is for us in Christ, the reality of our unbreakable faith and the reality of the hope of heaven. We are joining in with the angels and what the people of God throughout the ages have longed for in this glorious hope. As elect exiles, this world is not our home. Jesus promised, in this world, you will have tribulation. But he continues, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Because of the invaluable sacrifice of Christ, God's holy people have hope. Hope of a future salvation, hope of a glorious inheritance, hope as we eagerly await the glorious return of Christ. And it is this hope that enables us to live holy lives and to stand firm in the true grace of God. For after all, a Christian is someone who can say, if I die tomorrow, I'll be with Jesus. And if not, he'll be with me. So God, we rejoice in these glorious truths. And God, we long for the day when we will look upon your glorious face. Though we have not seen you, God, we love you. We love you. We thank you for all that you have done in bringing us to yourself. We thank you, Jesus, for your glorious resurrection and the final word of hope for our lives that not sin, not death, not anything had the power to overcome your great power and your might. You, Jesus, are alive. And you, Jesus, are coming again. And we cannot wait to be with you forever, fully satisfied in your presence. And so God, would you help us for as long as you give us in this existence to cling to the living hope that we have in Christ. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that they would be encouraged and spurred on as they cling to this hope. Father, I pray for my friends in this room who maybe are still without God and without hope in this world, holding on to guilt and shame and not knowing what to do with it, oh God. Would you pull them from the pit of despair and would you give them hope in Jesus? It's in his name we pray, amen.